Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from Paul's letter to the church in Rome. We are in chapter 8, and today we'll be reading verses 26 uh, down through verse 30. And so again, if you have your Bibles with you, let me invite you to turn there and follow along as I read. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those He called, He also justified. And those He justified, He also glorified. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. One of the distinctive characteristics of this eighth chapter of Romans is the frequency with which Paul mentions the Holy Spirit. More than 20 times, the Apostle speaks about the role that the Spirit plays in the lives of those who have been redeemed in Christ Jesus. In the last chapter, in verse 6, Paul wrote, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. That sentiment he repeated as he began this chapter when he says at the very beginning, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Paul wants his readers to understand that having responded to the call of Christ upon their lives by faith, they are now possessed by the very Spirit of God whose responsibility it is to apply all the work of Christ to them, thus shaping them, conforming them to the image of Christ, as well as sustaining them through their earthly lives as they wait eagerly for their adoption as sons, even the redemption of their bodies. This present time, he affirms, is characterized by sufferings that at times threaten to undo us. But the Holy Spirit continues to bear witness with our spirit, thus assuring us that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, this future glorification is the final result of God's work in us. It is the gracious restoration 
of that which was fouled by our sinful rebellion in Adam. The plans that God had at creation will not be stymied by either rebellious angels or men, but God will achieve all that He planned. And when God's kingdom comes in its full consummation, God alone will receive glory for it. Now, as we said last week, as we wait for all this to unfold, we do so eagerly and with patience, knowing that whatever suffering we must endure, God uses that to shape us more and more into the character of the Son. It is not God's expectation that we go through this present time comfortless or by our own power. God has sent to us the Spirit who helps us in our weakness. So even though we have peace with God, even though we are justified in God's sight and are no longer under any condemnation, even though the Spirit is engaged in a sanctifying work in us, we have not yet been perfected, nor are we free of the trials and tribulations of this present age. We are weak and in need of the spiritual strength that comes from God's indwelling Spirit. And so as Paul begins verse 26, he links it with what has gone before. And he has in mind this whole discussion about our suffering with Christ in order that we might be glorified with Him, as well as our future hope of our adoption as sons in the full redemption of our bodily selves. And with this in mind, he speaks of the Spirit's ministry of intercession as it pertains to our prayer life. Just because we are disciples of Christ does not mean that we innately know how to pray. Jesus' first disciples had been with him for some time, but they at one point asked him to teach them how to pray. They didn't mean that he show them how as in bow your head, close your eyes, fold your hands, but rather how as in what should our approach to God be and what should we ask for? And Jesus' answer was the prayer that we offer every Lord's Day. As you pray, say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And that framework and example is very helpful for us, primarily because it exposes the superficiality of many of our prayers, which tend to be requests for things that are contrary to the will of God. Who of us is naturally inclined to ask that God discipline us to the degree that we would grow in spiritual wisdom. Who of us is inclined to pray that God mortify any vestige of sin in us that we might be a better witness for Christ? Who of us asks that God equip us to be of greater service to the bride of Christ? Our tendency is to ask that God pronounce His blessing on things that we have already determined in our minds to do or in many cases have already done. And Paul points out here that we do not know what to pray for as we ought. And so the Spirit intercedes for us 
And that intercession is not based upon what our heart desires, but it is based upon the will of God for us. Now, there are disputations among commentators as to the groanings that he mentions here. Some argue that it is the Spirit who is groaning on our behalf to God. But others argue that can't be the case, for the Spirit would never be at a loss for words that would require any groaning. They would argue that the believer is the one who's groaning inexpressibly in prayer, and that the Spirit, who has taken up residence in us and knows us and what it is that we are attempting to say, but who also knows the will of God for us, helps us to express what is inexpressible. And still others argue that Paul is speaking metaphorically and that the groanings here are simply our deepest emotional thoughts that the Spirit brings before the Father on our behalf. Whatever the case may be, and there are other uh, thoughts and suggestions as well, we cannot be too dogmatic on this. But suffice it to say that the Spirit is engaged in a ministry of intercession in regard to us. Not according to the ignorance of our asking, but according to our needs as they pertain to the Father's will for us. Now it is at this point that Paul lays out what the ultimate will of God is for the saints. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. This 28th verse is a favorite for a good many believers, and rightly so. That being said, it is also a verse that many fail to understand rightly. For example, there are those who understand it to mean that if they love God, everything is going to start looking up for them. That is, that the favor of God is so going to shine upon them that they will be mightily blessed in their life. Their investments are all going to bear positive returns. Their children and grandchildren will all become successful professionals. Life will be deep and rich in every room of their house. will have a sign in it that simply says, Blessed. They will grow to a ripe old age, and like Queen Elizabeth II, will simply die in their sleep of old age. That, however, is not what all things work together for good means. Consider Joseph in the Old Testament. Out of a wicked jealousy, his brothers sold him into slavery and then lied to their father, saying Joseph had been killed by wild animals. Joseph was purchased by an Egyptian named Potiphar, whose Wife attempted to seduce Joseph, and when he rebuffed her advances, she then lied about him to her husband, accusing Joseph of making lewd advances towards her, and Joseph was put in jail. And for some period of time, he remained there. His release came only when his God-given ability to accurately interpret dreams was made known to Pharaoh who was so impressed that he freed him from jail, giving him a responsibility that made him second in command in all the land. And over the next several years, Joseph managed the stewardship of Egypt's harvest 
preparing for a long period of famine. And all this while, he was separated from his home and his family and his own people. But then the day came when his horrible brothers came to him seeking relief for the famine in their land. And when Joseph made himself known to them, for they no longer recognized him, they were in great distress, fearful that Joseph would seek retribution. But instead, Joseph had years to think and pray and consider God's unfolding plan for him. And he said to his brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So when Paul writes that all things work together for good, the good he speaks of is God's final good or true good. It is a good that can only be understood within the economy of God's providence. It is a good that can only be understood from a divine perspective. When God says through the prophet Isaiah, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts, it is from that seat of divine power that we must attempt to understand what this good might mean. It took years for Joseph to see it and comprehend it. And when he did, the all things that Paul speaks of here included a host of evil that God by His power used to bring about God's good purpose, not only for Joseph, but for all of God's people. Now we must also note that this is true only for those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. In other words, what Paul is saying is not universally true. It is not true for those who are not in Christ. It's not true for those whom we met back in chapter 1 who are under the wrath of God for their ungodliness and unrighteousness. And Paul says that they seek only to suppress the truth about God. If they affirm that all things work together for good, it is nothing more than an empty philosophy that has no basis in truth and is yet one more example of them attempting to suppress the truth about God. It's also interesting to note here that there is a definite article in this sentence that the King James Version of the Scriptures emphasizes. And in that authorized version, it reads like this, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. Now that emphasis highlights that this promise of all things working together for good is strictly for those whom God chose before the foundation of the world, as Paul states in Ephesians chapter 1. If you are unfamiliar with that portion of Scripture, allow me to read this just briefly. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, 
that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. When Paul speaks about those who are the called according to His purpose, he is speaking of those whom God chose before the foundation of the world. Now, do we comprehend what an awesome notion this is? God has a purpose from eternity past for all those who are in Christ such that all things in our lives are working towards a goal, working towards a magnificent purpose that will, in the end, result in His glory, a glory that will also be revealed in us and we will share in it. And Paul is saying in Romans 8 that for those whom God foreknew, He also predestinated, predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Not only is it a great privilege for us to be the recipients of God's grace, for we in no wise deserved that grace, but God goes so far beyond that by purposing that the events of our life would bring us into conformity with the image of God's only begotten Son. Does God the Father love anyone more than He loves the Son? Now do you see the wonder of it all? That God would intentionally design things in such a way that our misshapen lives, torn and twisted by sin would be miraculously transformed into lives that will one day reflect the image of the sinless Son of God. And this God does for all those whom He foreknew. Which is to say, for all those whom God chose before the foundation of the world. God has a purpose that is not dependent upon a human whim or upon the shifting sands of the human mind or upon the ever-changing inventions of a human will. God's purpose rests upon His eternal will. It rests upon the intentions of Him who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It rests upon the wisdom of the One who set the planets on their courses and determined the boundaries of the sea. It is according to this divine will and purpose that God predestines all those whom He foreknew. And those whom God predestined, He also called. And those whom God called, He also justified. And those whom God justified, He also glorified. Now here is what is referred to as the golden chain of salvation. It points to the fact that God will accomplish His purposes. And when that purpose is focused on the salvation of His children, it is a tremendous comfort to us because it assures us that God will not fail. God's eye does not wander away from those 
who are His. God does not lose concentration and get distracted by some two-bit dictator who rattles his saber in an attempt to gain some worldwide attention or to start another world war. God does not forget about His own when global pandemics appear to be out of control or a new asteroid the size of Rhode Island wanders across our orbit. God's attention is fully upon those whom He has chosen. And step by step, God leads them into a saving knowledge of His only begotten Son in order that they too will experience the glory about to be revealed. Our salvation is anchored in eternity past. Do we imagine that the Almighty God who created all that is by simply speaking it into existence would then create a world that would be governed by some force outside of His sovereign purview? What an unloving thing that would be for a loving God to do. The rebellion that exists in this world is of our own doing. But even this rebellion is not so powerful that it has the capacity to checkmate God's King. God's omniscience is such that He knows not only what we think, but how we think. God knows all there is to know about us. What does the psalmist say? O Lord, You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, You know it altogether. If our salvation in any way rested upon us, upon our will, upon our performance, upon our perseverance, upon our desires, we would have great reason to be anxious about our eternal destiny. But for all those who are in Christ Jesus, God assures us that all those whom He foreknew, He predestined. And all those He predestined, He called. And all those He called, He justified. And all those He justified, He glorified. I don't know if you're catching the sense of the tense of these verbs. They are set in the Greek aorist tense which most nearly resembles the past tense in English. And right here, because God is the one who is the actor. Paul can say with all confidence that these actions are done deals. God will not fail. While in the realm of time they have not all been accomplished, from the perspective of where God sits upon His throne in eternity, they are complete. And so it is that the Son can say in John chapter 6, And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And then in John 10, where Jesus is speaking of Himself as the Good Shepherd, He says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of My hand. 
Or in John 17, the high priestly prayer that Jesus utters in intercession for us the night before He goes to the cross. While I was with them, I kept them in Your name which You have given Me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the Scripture might be fulfilled. The Reverend Dr. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones makes the argument that Paul's primary purpose, beginning in chapter 8, is to provide the believer with assurance of his salvation that he might confidently walk in the Spirit. And these closing verses from 28 until the end of the chapter could not be more magnificent in their glorious affirmation concerning the overarching purpose of God for the salvation of those whom He has chosen since before the beginning of time itself. And so if you are in Christ Jesus, take comfort. If you are in Christ Jesus, fear not. If you are in Christ Jesus, be not afraid, for God is working out His purpose in you, and you will one day understand how it is that all things have worked together for His glory and for your good. Let me invite you to bow your heads with me for a brief prayer this morning.